Hi, and welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Lana Freshly, recruiter for the College of Arts and Sciences. Today, we'll be interviewing Jacqueline Cosgrove, reporter for the LA Times and a CAS alumna. We'll be discussing the different changes of the LA Times during this time of crisis and how her job has changed from being on the scene to being on the couch. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for being a part of our Pokes podcast. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. A little bit about Jacqueline. Um, she graduated from OSU in 2009, and she was a health reporter at the Oklahoma for five years and is currently working for the LA Times. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Yeah, we're so excited to have you back. Um, I know you're not on campus today, neither am I, because we're still working remotely, but um, I'm glad that we get to reunite on our OSU um, values and we get to talk a little bit about your job and how Corona has affected that. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm happy to chat, just uh, sitting here in my living room, uh, me and my dog. So <laughs> weird, it's her. <laughs> All right. Um, so we wanted to get your gauge. Um, I mean, it, it is crazy around the world right now, and everyone's jobs have shifted dramatically. Um, tell me a little bit about how your job has changed as a reporter. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning. Um, I can't think of like what what hasn't changed. I mean, you know, my cousin texted me yesterday, and he said, you know, you're covering you know, the biggest story in the world, basically, from the second largest city in America. And I, I said, you know, I hadn't really thought about it in that context. And it feels bizarre to be doing that from my dining room, you know. Um, whenever there's a big fire, I often go out and close enough to the fire to tell the story without being in danger. You know, um, when we cover wildfires, we have on masks, uh, the the very popular N95 mask, and um, or we have on like a, a respirator type mask, um, and then we'll have fire gear, you know, like a, a jacket and pants, kind of similar to what firefighters wear. You know, it's a whole thing. I mean, there's whole, like preparation and, you know, you're looking at maps and, and so it's really bizarre to be covering something that's, you know, causing so much fear and so much panic and so much disruption in our lives. And I'm just doing it from my dining room, you know, often with, you know, my dog that I mentioned at my feet. I mean, I, you know, our bosses are really stressing, you know, do not go out if you don't need to, um, which is the opposite of what an editor usually tells you. They usually want you to go as close as humanly possible, talk to as many people as possible so that they have plenty to work with um, when they edit your story. And, and our editors are really stressing, like, self-care, um, taking off. Our, our editor um, told us that we don't need to work extra. And, again, like, editors are good people, but they're not usually telling you in the middle of a, like, crisis to not work extra. So, you know, we're saying what everyone's saying, that this is a, a marathon, not a sprint. So we have to take care of ourselves. And it's bizarre, but I, I haven't left my apartment to do any reporting. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's just a huge transition into what we're used to. I know that your beat is typically the metro area, so this kind of falls in line to what you would normally report on anyway, um, just a mass crisis. But how has this affected, like, the sports reporters or people that it's pretty far off their beat? Are they doing corona stories as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, everybody's all in. Um, 
our sports page um, has shrunk in part because, I mean, the whole paper has shrunk, unfortunately, because of the amount of uh, print advertising that we've lost, um, which I think I know is a real crisis, um, especially at the local level for small papers. You know, I, for one, am extremely concerned about how it's going to affect local journalism. But yeah, I mean, the sports page, um, I can't quite remember if it's every day, but they added a, a back page on the sports page that's the kids section now. Like there's a new kids section where we're like explaining coronavirus for kids. Um, oh, wow. Which, yeah, which reminds me of like the mini pages, like back in the day when I used to like pull that from my local paper and read it. You open the paper and we've changed the sections and, and it like I, got, I get the Sunday print paper. And when I picked it up, I was like, wow, this is different. Like the ads first off were just, I mean, a third of what they usually are, you know, and then the sections are a lot smaller. Um, so yeah, everybody, but, but at the same time, we're really making a push for, for digital and, and everybody you know, is being told like, write as much as you want because we're going to, because we have so much, uh, such a high readership right now. And so tons of stories that we write are just going to be online only. So yeah, everybody's still working and doing their beats, although those things have, you know, obviously changed. But yeah, I mean, everybody's writing about the pandemic. That jingle was Maggie. <laughs> Hi, Maggie. Welcome to the interview. We're excited to have her too. She's really happy to be here. <laughs> I know we talked a little bit about how it's changed since you are doing a lot of your reporting and your investigation from your couch. So that kind of leads me into um, a question about social interaction. So it's so interesting. Whenever I'm not freaking out about the pandemic, I'm totally fascinated that we're able to live in a time that we get to see this evolve and how it changes our society. So mm -hmm. uh, I want to know, how has it been on you for your stories? Like, have you had an easier time or a harder time trying to get a hold of people to get sources and find different stories? I have been doing a lot of breaking news. Um, so a lot of mine's been monitoring public officials and what they're saying. Um, it's weird to not have anybody like physically at a press conference because, you know, we print reporters don't often like to ask all our questions during the news conference. We like to go up to someone afterward and ask our like very specific question to the scoop that we hopefully have. And so um, it's weird because, you know, we have this very limited window where we can ask questions. Now, our beat reporters, like our city reporters, they can ask, you know, the mayor's office questions at other times. But I know that me and my colleagues, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, is this story worth it like we I had a colleague who um an editor had asked her to go out to like the beaches and park and, and talk to people um because they'd been recently closed and we'd kind of already written about that before and she and I and another friend who works at the times we talked about like is this worth it like should she actually go get in her car and talk to people or is there another way to do this the, the three of us as reporters like we're all three like always very interested in going out and doing things so it was it's weird for the three of us to be talking about how to not do an assignment because like I said with fires I mean I twice with the big fires have worked like 25 hours straight before um like without sleeping like editors are always like take a nap and I'm like um I'd love to take a nap but everything's on fire so not a good place to park my car with social interactions I know that some reporters are using like selfie sticks so that they have that distance it's hard because, I mean, you know, one of the ways that people trust you is by sitting next to you and you 
share about your life and talk to each other and connect. But I'm still having good phone interviews with people. Um, I think in part because people are bored. And so in some ways they might be more willing to talk to a reporter because this is a really important story. They're excited to talk to the LA Times and they're bored. You know, I had a great conversation yesterday with a um, public health officer in um, a small county in California, just about like the challenges they're facing. And unlike Oklahoma, unlike Oklahoma, like California is very much focused like county government. Um, so there's like a county mental health system and like the county itself, instead of having county commissioners, we have boards, board of supervisors. And the, those people have in LA County, they have a lot of money and a lot of power, but it's a much more of a county-based government throughout the state rather than the state government taking a lot more of the power and responsibility. So yeah, so a lot of calls to different county officials and less focus on talking to state officials. Yeah, in terms of social interactions, I mean, when I go out just to like walk my dog or, you know, go pick up groceries or something, um, it's really interesting. Yesterday I went to a park because my dog needed to like run uh, and play. <laughs> She's a lab mixed with a blue healer so she like really has to like run hard uh multiple times a week or she's kind of losing it and uh, we went to this park it was interesting because I was just like standing at this picnic table keeping my distance from folks and within a few minutes I was already talking to people I mean I think that people want social interaction like we are social creatures so I don't think that this is going to like make us less social I'm actually wondering if it'll make us more social and make us want to get off our phones and look up and talk to people more. I mean, nobody was on their phone at the park yesterday, which is interesting. I hadn't thought about that till, till this moment, but we were all just like talking and laughing at our dogs. So that's really interesting. I'm curious about how long social distancing will last. And I'm curious about how long people are going to wear masks. Cause right now, a lot of people in my neighborhood are wearing masks. Um, like I, when I walk, you know, Maggie, I'm one of the few people who doesn't have a mask on right now. So that feels a little strange. <laughs> yeah, it's been definitely a shift in how we perceive physical touch. Um, a lot of people, you know, are, are not hugging, obviously, we're not shaking hands or staying six feet apart, per all of the CDC recommendations, you know, this is going to change physically or physical relationships with people, like with just random people. Um, you know, you're from Oklahoma. We are, there's a lot of huggers here. So it's been impacting a lot of different people. Do you think that it's the end of the age of shaking hands and kissing babies? No, uh, I don't. Um, I think we'll always kiss babies. I mean, I think people might be a little more mindful of it. I think it's going to be interesting because, you know, they're saying we could have a second wave of this, which I know like nobody wants to hear, including myself. I think if we can get through this year, it's going to, it's hard. Like, because if there's going to be a second wave, I think people will be kind of still freaked out. But I think that those traditions of shaking hands and kissing babies and hugging, you know, those have all existed forever because we like those things, you know, we like to have that connection with each other. I hope those things come back, but yeah, I don't know when they will. Um, but it is weird with sources. I mean, you always shake someone's hand when you meet them as a reporter, you know? And so that's been, I, uh, before everything got so hectic and locked down, I went to a, a court hearing for a story I've been working on. And, uh, you know, I went to shake the attorney's hand and he's, uh, he's an older guy and he, uh, just, he fist bumped all the reporters instead. <laughs> and so, 
I was just like, oh, right, we're not shaking hands right now. Um, but yeah, the Oki and me, I mean, you know, I'm shaking everybody's hand. And then um, and then people do hug reporters. Um, I don't initiate a hug. That's a, a rule of mine. <laughs> if you want to hug me, that's fine. But I'm not going to initiate a hug because that gets weird. I don't know. I, I want to believe that we're all going to because we're all going through this together, that we'll all recover together, you know? And I think that's the important role of journalists is that we tell those recovery stories, you know? And we keep, we stay with the story far beyond the panic and we show the recovery and we show how communities are growing together and, and what we've learned and, and how we can protect ourselves next time this happens. Because, you know, unfortunately there will be a next time, but, you know, we can just all hope and pray that we learn from this and we grow from this and that, you know, we're able to better protect ourselves next time around. So that's my hope. That's my like, woo woo, please let everything be okay. You know, <laughs> speech. Yeah. Um, you may know this and I love history. And so I saw this article from on CNN on uh, John Avalon had written about historical trends. So it was talking about the last pandemic was the Spanish flu of 1918. And get this, it killed 50 million people worldwide, 675,000 people in the US. And that was when we had a population a third of what it is today. So to put that in perspective, that killed more people than World War One, World War Two, the Korean War and Vietnam combined. Wow. And, and you know what's interesting about that is that we still don't know why it was so bad. Like yeah. when I was a th when I wrote a story about the flu because I was irritated that people didn't take the flu more seriously. Um, because the flu virus at any time can just like mutate and become super deadly, and like we still don't fully understand what happened during that pandemic and why it was so deadly, which is <laughs> super comforting. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's funny to me because. Um, you know, we've grown up in an age of advanced technology and medical advances. And so it's interesting to see just how similar it is and, and reading about the historical aspects of the Spanish flu as in today. I mean, yeah, today we're all impulse buying toilet paper, but, you know, it's not far off from what people were frantic about in 1918 is just survival and what resources they need to survive. Yeah, I mean, that is a really interesting point that you make because, yeah, we do see ourselves as these, like, advanced beings. But at the end of the day, like, we want the same things. You're absolutely right. We want to be safe and we want our families to be safe. And we're going to do what we need to do to do that. And I guess there's some of us that think we need toilet paper hoards to make that happen. Uh, I'm not one of them. I've not been hoarding anything, which I, on the flip side makes my family anxious that I'm like, I'm going to buy what I need. Everybody, you know, I got, like, some preppers in Oklahoma are like buy all the beans and I'm like no I'm gonna buy what I need like I'm gonna be responsible I'm not gonna be part of the problem so yeah I have an, I have six rolls of toilet paper in my home right now and I'm comfortable with that uh you said something very important Jacqueline you said uh, you don't want to be a part of the problem and I think that's uh what people frequently forget right so they forget to stay present in the moment and realize that a lot of us have those resources that, you know, the grocery stores are still stocking. So um, making sure that we are providing resources for other people, especially our elderly. Um, you know, our elderly aren't in a position, a lot of them to purchase mass amounts of things to stock up. So um, whenever we do that, then it really hurts the population. 
I'm really grateful that like the grocery stores across the country are doing the the special shopping times for older folks. I did laugh because I my mom has a friend who is not a morning person. So she was like, can I send a proxy? Like, I'm not going to get up that early. I've thought a lot about how people who are very much living paycheck to paycheck, who were already doing that long before this happened, and now they're not getting any hours or their hours have been cut, you know, and we're telling them to try to stock up. Um, that's not real practical. I hope that when, you know, we get our everybody gets their checks from the government, um, that that helps some, but the cost of living, it's, I think it's going to be interesting how it helps across the country because the cost of living is so high here, um, versus in Oklahoma. I, I definitely, when I go to the grocery store, I, I get it. It's really easy to feel that panic. Um, when I was in the store, like the first time where I had to get in line and, you know, I was trying to social distance in line and the person behind me was not real interested in that. Um, and I was getting nervous, you know, so I'm already like nervous in line and then they open the grocery store and it feels like, you know, I don't know, you're going to just dash in and try to grab as much as possible. It feels like a, <laughs> a weird messed up game show or something. And then you go in and like, you know, I just want some beans and then like the shelves bare, you know, and you're like, okay, great. And the good thing for me, the first time I went is, you know, uh, this will be upsetting to some of your listeners. I ate a vegan diet and uh, nobody wanted the vegan food. So I was able to get like a lot of my groceries um, because no one had like made a mad dash for like vegan chicken. So that was cool. I uh, <laughs> was real grateful for that. My friends and I have all been looking for tofu and um, I just have this like like I'm just imagining like in Oklahoma like in Walmart like just there's just like tons and tons of tofu just like stacking up um because like no one wants it whereas here you can't find it my friend it's the only thing that we hoarded my friend bought six deals of tofu so that she could share them with we each got two um that's the only time we've hoarded something and it was it was for the three of us Yeah, it's easy to do. I'm, I'm glad that you guys are getting enough tofu out there. If you need me to mail you some in, I might be able to arrange something. So just let me know. Nice refrigerated package. Yeah. Okay, as a reporter, um, I know it's important to you to always have the facts. How has this been challenging with so many constant updates with COVID-19? Oh, man. Um, I have a pretty good example of how it's been challenging. The other day... Um, LA County, um, our county public health department announced early in the day that a minor had died and their death was related to the coronavirus. And it was enormous news on our end because at the time it seemed like it could be the first child who had died as as a result of the virus. Um, so, you know, we're scrambling to get stories up, you know, we get them up as fast as possible. And then I was on the night shift that day. So I come in and soon into my shift, the county public health department announces that they're not sure actually if the minor did die uh, related to the virus. They didn't, they, the CDC is going to have to check. So we have like three stories up on our website about how this child had died and we had talked to a bunch of people and experts and we're scrambling around to like beef the story up. And, um, now I have to like update the story because we're not sure whether that's true. That was one, or like one of the most stressful moments of anything because it, I had to change headlines and I had to like change, like completely rework stories. Um, you know, and we already had people thinking like that a child had died. And so it's like, we're talking like, do we send out a clarification? It's not, 
it's not our error. And so, yeah, I was scrambling, calling my editor, telling my editor, like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm publishing straight to the web. Like, I'm skipping the copy desk. I'm just going straight. Jacqueline is writing and publishing straight to latimes.com, which is, you know, a surreal experience. So, yeah, that was really stressful and hard. We just sort of talked about, I don't, I don't, I can't remember, honestly, everything so much has happened since then. I can't remember if we sent out a clarification or not. I think we sent out like a news push so people who had the app could know that public health officials were still looking into whether the child had actually died from the coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, just as a note, I know they're not interchangeable. Uh, <laughs> but um, that was pretty crazy. Um, there have been some days where I have been busier than any time in my entire career. I mean, it, it feels similar to when you're covering like a tornado warning sometimes like that's how you're much you're scrambling around because you're just getting so much information at once and so yeah it there have been some days where I've just been I've not looked up you know I'll just work and work and work and I'll be like oh I haven't eaten in eight hours all right cool I'm gonna finish I'm gonna fix that it's easy to do to get swept away, especially um, whenever a lot of us are working from home, right? So I know myself, it's easy for me to mask in my work and find myself lost in that and not have to think about the stresses of the outside world. So it's hard. Um, I know that you have a very strong passion for mental health. So one of the things we had on a, our previous episode, we were able to interview Dr. Thad Leffingwell from our psychology department, that how to stay sane during COVID-19. Some things he suggested was structuring your day, taking care of your body and your mind, staying in the pre present. From your mental health background and your knowledge, like what tips do you suggest to people? Yeah, um, I mean, all the things that you mentioned are wonderful to do. I think staying present, like some people are going to roll their eyes when they hear that because they're going to think, oh, that's, you know, more of that like mental health stuff. But really what staying present means is just that you're not thinking about what's going to happen in a month. You're not thinking about what's going to happen in three months. You're not thinking about like, oh no, what happens to my life if there's a second wave of the virus, you know? It's okay to have those thoughts, but when we get like fixated on those thoughts and we start writing this narrative in our head that that is going to be our reality, then that really makes our anxiety tick up, which, you know, affects the rest of our bodies. Um, or it can also cause depression with, you know, not feeling like there's any hope. And I think that, you know, one thing that's been really helpful for me, honestly, is just when I take walks, um, looking at how spring is here and how like the, the, like nature is doing great. Like we've gotten so much rain here in California. It's such a blessing. And there are, I mean, I'm seeing every color of flower when I take Maggie on walks. Um, and I really focus on like the beautiful things around me. And so if you can get safely outside of your home to go walk your dog or just take a walk, you know, at least here in California, that's under the rules of what we're allowed to do. Um, we're not on like total, total lockdown yet. Uh, my wife and I were able to find a hiking trail where there weren't a lot of people. So we were able to do that. So I think being able to do some of the things that we still enjoy is important. Um, but just trying to find joy in something every day. Seeking out joy is harder than being negative and being sad. It actually takes a lot more energy to like try to be happy. It's um, definitely a practice. I think we mm -hmm. often forget that 
being happy is a practice that we have to show ourselves how to do. We have to choose to the positive narrative. Right. Exactly. I mean, just like, you know, I think there's been research that even just like smiling when, even when you don't mean it can like help you. Um, I've tried that. Uh, maybe oh, like- our friend Gretchen says, act the way you want to feel yes. for Gretchen Rubin. Fantastic. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, there have definitely been times in the newsroom where I've been upset, you know, just hypothetically maybe upset with my editor and, um, I just smile and I'm like, you know, this is actually working. So I think right now it's just really important. My best advice is to stay present and also to limit your news consumption. Um, and I'm saying that as a journalist and as a human, there was one day where, you know, I was like, man, I haven't really read like a lot about what's going on in New York. Like I knew enough but I hadn't read a lot. And I ended up going down an internet rabbit hole. I watched a video about this doctor who, it was a New York Times video about this doctor and it was like 72 hours inside of her hospital. And then I like read some articles and I was just like freaking out after that. I was just like, oh, this is really bad and it's gonna come here because LA is next. And I just let myself get into quite the panic. Um, and I hadn't done that yet, which is crazy because I've been reporting on it, you know, for you know, at least eight hours a day. And so, yeah, I definitely found myself realizing why, you know, we've written stories about it. Other people have written stories about it that you should try to do, you know, 10 minutes a day is what I've seen recommended. I've told my wife and friends, like, you know, if you really have like a burning question, try to look on the CDC's website or World Health Organization's website because they have some good information on there and it's not going to be told in a news way you know I know we're being really careful about how we write our news and the narratives that we tell we don't want to panic people Um, but at the same time we do want people to be responsible and be prepared so awesome thanks for those tips um we've talked a lot about just a lot of things that are going on in our world that aren't necessarily happy so I know you do a lot of reporting so tell us a story that'll lift our spirits that you've heard in the last few weeks um, well, I, I know I've mentioned my dog a lot, but she's been my main sort of, my main reason to go outside. And so the other day I was walking her and I saw this family coming toward me and I thought, okay, I want to be respectful. Like they got a little kid, they might be anxious. Um, you know, I just, it's just me and a dog. So I'm going to give them some space. Well, then the little boy, he was probably around four or five. He like sees Maggie and he's just like, dog, dog, you know, he's like so excited and his mom's like, do you want to pet the doggy? And he's like, yes. And so um, I was like, she's really friendly. I mean, Maggie loves kids. And so I had her sit and then um, he was petting her. And then I showed her how he could, or I showed the little boy how Maggie can do shake. And the dad said, yes, right now, doggy handshakes are okay, but people ones are not. <laughs> and I just died laughing. So that, that moment brought me a lot of joy, you know, just, it was just nice to have an interaction with people where it wasn't panicked and you weren't sort of like eyeing them, like, is this six feet or not? Um, We were a fine distance away from each other. So that was a nice moment. And uh, yeah, I'd say that's my, probably my positive moment. I love that. I love that dog handshakes are still safe because (laughs) I'll take a dog handshake any day. (laughs) She can also high five. Oh, great. Make sure that this is a comprehensive analysis of her tricks. <laughs> we'll be expecting a video later. So, Jacqueline, thank you so much. Uh, we miss you here. We hope to get to see you soon. And thanks for coming on the show today.
Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It was real fun. Thanks again for tuning in to the Pokes podcast. To learn more about the College of Arts and Sciences, go to cas.okstate.edu. And we have one final question we like to ask all of our people that come on the Pokes podcast. How do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? Well, I think that we're well aware of how the sciences make the world a better place right now. I've seen people say, is this like the time where people will finally start believing scientists? I sure hope so. Um, I've been a big fan of our public health system for a long time, especially when I was a health reporter. And I saw just how, you know, those people do their jobs because they care about people. Um, and I think we're seeing that now um, with our public health folks who, you know, suddenly people know what the state epidemiologist name is. And suddenly people know the names of their public health, their, their local public health officials, whereas they used to only need to talk to them if they needed like a low cost flu shot. Um, in terms of arts, I mean, gosh, right now um, we need to see beautiful things. And whether that's, you know, beautiful writing, whether that's a beautiful work of art, we need our spirits lifted. And so I can't think of a more relevant time for the arts and science than in a pandemic where we all need, you know, beautiful things and vital information. <laughs>